Technology. He's the founder. Welcome, Ted Wright, please. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a great joy to be back with you guys this morning. And, um, you know, I've known Jeremy for several years and I uh, just learned some really cool stuff about him. So um, I was talking to his wife and talking to some of his friends, and I learned that very, in a very early age, uh, his parents knew he was going to be a preacher. At a very early, I don't know if you guys have heard this. You know, Do they know personal things about you? Okay. So well, you want to hear it? It's really interesting. So, so when Jeremy was about like uh, seven or eight years old, he was going to school, um, he had a tendency to exaggerate you know, and tell like, em embellish stories. He doesn't do that here, does he? A little bit, okay. So you know, he's this little. He, Jeremy's this like seven or eight year old kid. And he's going to class, and um, he 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 would always come in and like just tell these very tall tales. Like, you know what happened today, uh, teacher? Well, me and my dad this weekend we caught like you know five hundred catfish, and you know they were each a hundred pounds a piece. And and she would like, okay, Jeremy, all right, all right, whatever. And so he'd just do this every week. He'd come in, you know, show and tell time. And he would tell these big stories, and they were obviously made up. So she decided, I'm going to get him one day. So she came up with a story. She thought, I'm going to get him at his own game. So she said, all right, so what am I going to do? So she came in class and she said, all right, class, before show and tell, I've got my own story to tell you, and you're not going to believe this. So on the way to class today, I was walking to class, and there was literally a thousand-pound gorilla that came out of the bushes and began to attack me. And it was, it was just, it scared me to death. I was going to die. And then around the corner, a little chihuahua came out on the sidewalk and literally attacked the gorilla and killed it. Can you believe that? And everybody's like, holy kids, her eyes were big. And Jeremy's sitting over there. He's like, he's like, and she kind of looked at me and said, Jeremy, what do you think about that? He goes, doesn't surprise me. That was my dog. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, par for the course, I guess. Um, yep. No, that's actually uh, a, a possible true story. <laughs> uh, it takes a preacher to know a preacher. It was, your, it was his cat. <laughs> and it was a poodle, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, it's so great to, great to be here with you this morning again. And um, so those of you who are not here, uh, we had a great weekend. And uh, I think you missed out on a lot of great stuff. And I hope and pray that you take it. Let me say this about Jeremy as well. You were blessed to have him as a pastor. Let me tell you. I speak around the country, and I speak internationally, and i got to tell you, right here where you are in LaGrange, North Carolina, you've been an awesome pastor. Amen? Amen. Let's give him a round of applause. Seriously. <laughs> he didn't ask me to do that. You can pay me later, though. No, I'm just kidding. He didn't ask me to do that. But in all seriousness, uh, you know, I've gotten to see some amazing things in my life, and God truly, I mean, really, has allowed me to see some amazing places in my life. Um, today's topic, the, today's sermon is going to be Loving God with All Your Minds, A Matter of National Destiny. It may seem like an odd title for a sermon, and I hope that it makes sense at, at, as we get to the end of the message today. Um, how in the world can a loving God with your mind be a matter, matter of national destiny? I mean, what? What does that even mean? Well, I'll come to that in a minute. So uh, here I am, and I'm just going to show you a few pictures here. This is actually in the ancient city of Shechem uh, in Israel. It's located in the West Bank. This is the, literally, I'm standing right in front of the gate of ancient Shechem that dates to the first century. You remember when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well? And this is actually outside the city. So when she came back into the city, that's the gate she walked through, very likely. So I got to see that with my own eyes. It was just remarkable. You read about it in the Bible, and then you actually go there, and you're like, wow, this actually really happened. It's like, it's a, it's a true story. Um, I got to see uh, the place in Italy where Paul landed. This is the city of Pozzuoli in southern Italy near Naples. 
This is in the, uh, the city square there. It's actually flooded, uh, so I don't know if you all have been to Naples, Italy or not, but uh, so Naples is where the, uh, this, the volcano Vesuvius, Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD erupted and literally covered up the entire city of Pompeii. Well, the whole Bay of Naples out in the ocean, out in the Mediterranean, it's actually under the, under the ocean, it's a caldera. And it's like, the best way I can describe it, it's like a giant, like a big belly of a giant, and it's breathing, so it raises up and it lowers down. And what it does is the sea level rise up near the city and it floods this marketplace right here. But in the first century, uh, when Paul landed in Naples, when he landed in, uh, in this city called Pozzuoli, he stayed there for seven days, according to the book of Acts. And there's actually a little church with a commemorate, commemorating plaque showing where, where the Apostle Paul landed. So uh, just some remarkable places that I've been to. And of course, this is in the Colosseum, the ruins of the Colosseum in Rome, which you may or may not know, but it's a very interesting fact about that, that uh, when the Romans came into Jerusalem in 70 AD and they destroyed Jerusalem and they took all the gold out, uh, they took the gold back to the uh, coffers in Rome, and uh, there was so much gold that they took from Jerusalem that it made the price of gold go down in Rome. There was so much gold, and they made, placed a down payment on the Flavian Amphitheater, which was the largest amphitheater in the Roman Empire. In fact, the floor itself, you can see the bottom of there, but the floor itself is literally uh, from the bottom floor of the basement to the top floor of the, of the bottom of the Colosseum is three stories high. So uh, it's enormous and they could actually flood it and they could actually have sea battles in it and it would seat like, you know, something like 70,000 people. It's unbelievable. I mean, this is like 2,000 years ago. Uh, to, so anybody ever been to Rome, saw that? It's just really amazing, isn't it? You got the Spanish people. <laughs> yeah, the missionaries. We see what that money's going to now. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is actually in Rome itself as well. This is an excavation uh, going. Uh, it's actually, uh, and I, uh, my, my memory serves me correctly, this is actually the, the uh, University of Rome is actually excavating uh, at the um, Baths of Caracalla. So in the ancient Roman world, they had these huge bathhouses, which kind of seems odd to us. Like, why would you want to go take a bath with somebody else? But uh, it, it, yeah, they really did that. Look, read it, read about it. And, uh, but it was where they did business. You know, like they had the guy's side and they had the girl's side. It's kind of like a spa today, but it, they were much larger and they had public baths. So they're excavating there the public baths in Rome. But I got to see a lot of amazing things. And, and, and I've always, this is several years ago, but this is the Roman Forum. Uh, where the Roman Empire, uh, which is really one of the greatest empires in the ancient world. Uh, but obviously Rome fell. Rome actually fell. And uh, to the Romans, to them, you know, they thought the Rome would never fall. Rome was just going to be there forever. It's just Ro this Roman Empire. You know, it's going to last for millions of years. But there it is in ruin right there. It's in ruin. And uh, when I was there, I was with two friends of mine, and they abandoned me, and I, I needed a selfie or something, you know. And I'm here in the, I mean, I read about this my entire life, and I teach history and Old Testament archaeology, and nobody's there to take my picture. So I had to set my camera up on a, I don't know what I put it on, but I put it on the timer on, and I ran over, and, and I got this really cool picture there in the ruins of the Roman Empire. But um, so I want us to think about what is it that makes empires fall? I mean, if the Roman Empire can fall, then other nations can fall as well. In fact, archaeologists, we make our living by, uh, in fact, if you, if you go into archaeology, your career will be in ruins. I'm just telling you. Um, but in all seriousness, 
Um, Gibbon, the great historian, wrote the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in the 17th century. He wrote this amazing work trying to describe the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, and if you ever read that, you know that what Gibbon said was that there was a moral collapse in the Roman Empire that caused the fall of the Roman Empire. And then uh, another recent book by an archaeologist at the University of uh, George Washington University. Uh, his name is uh, Dr. Eric Klein. He wrote a book called 1177, The Year Civilization Collapsed. And uh, what he's referring to is something that archaeologists call the Late Bronze Age Collapse. What happened in, in around the year 1177 to about 1200 B.C. is that uh, Israel and the Levant, not just Israel, but also Egypt and Syria and Assyria, all those nations got just influxed by a group called the Sea Peoples, the ancient Phoenicians. They literally flooded the coastline and they just, uh, it, the, all the civilization, the, all the trade networks, all of the connections that they made, all the politics, it all just utterly collapsed. And this book uh, basically tries to tr uh, find some of, the, some of the causes for what caused civilization to collapse. A few years ago, I came up, that interests me as a, as a historian, as a Christian even. I want to know what is it that makes civilizations collapse? And let me just throw this out there to you this morning. Um, if Rome fell, and Rome was a great empire, in fact, the geographical extent of Rome, uh, at the height of the Roman Empire, did you know that the height of the Roman Empire, and scholars debate this, but around the time of Hadrian, it had 200,000 miles of paved roads. Isn't that amazing? And the reason why was because they wanted to get their army anywhere in the empire. Uh, so just remarkable. But if Rome fell, do you think America could fall? Do you think it's possible? Absolutely. Well, a few years ago, I read this book here by Jim Nelson Black, and the title interested me. It said, When Nations Die, uh, America on the Brink, Ten Warning Signs of a Culture in Crisis. It was published in 1994, um, and it, what he did was, the book basically, uh, Jim Nelson Black looked at these, all these great nations of the world, Rome, Carthage, uh, Egypt, you look, he looked at all these, and he tried to condense them down into to what was it that made all of these civilizations collapse. And this is, and I'm just going to throw this out there, and uh, you can make your own conclusions as to what you think if, we're, if we are there as a country. So uh, the, here's the term warning signs. So uh, social decay, lawlessness, uh, a lack of respect for the law, loss of economic discipline, rising bureaucracy, in which you've just got bigger and bigger and bigger government, and government swells and swells and swells, and it gets so large. Uh, here's some more. Cultural decay, decline in education, decline in education, weakening of the cultural foundations, loss of respect for tradition. Nobody cared about Rome anymore. It was all just about me and my own life, my own job, and that kind of thing, and that's okay, but uh, loss of respect. Increasing materialism which I thought was very interesting. These are the, he's talking about the ancient world. He's not talking about the modern world, but he's comparing uh, these nations and what led to their decline. And then the last three, I think, are very interesting. Rise in immorality, a decay of religious belief, and the devaluing of human life. The devaluing of human life is what led to the decline of these great, great civilizations. But here's the problem, folks. The problem of America, I believe, actually go much deeper than these 10 warning signs because we are now living in a culture in which believes that up is down and that down is up, uh, that dry is wet, that men are women and women are men. In short, what is right is wrong and wrong is right. Why, well, where am I coming from? What am I saying this about? Well, it's in our Declaration of Independence. In 1776, the very first line says, We hold these truths to be self-evident. What in the world is a self-evident truth? And, and basically what they said was, and here's the self-evident truth, that all men are created equal, 
that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So the question I want to ask this morning is uh, this statement here. Let's just stop there because this is really the foundation of our country. the, The founding fathers understood that what makes America work, what makes this country work, is a is an uh, basically a belief in self-evident truths. And here's the question: Do we today believe in self-evident truths, or do we have a culture that is completely gone in a 180 degree direct different direction? I think it's actually the other direction. What are well? First, let's talk about what self-evident truths. And the, name, and, the, and the words of a great book by a professor out down in UT Austin, it's a self-evident truth is what you can't not know. It sounds kind of crazy, but it's something that you just can't not know this. You, everybody knows it, and uh, it's self-evident. That's why, that's why they call it self-evident. Uh, it's innate knowledge written on the heart. It's written on your heart. You know it. In fact, this weekend we had one of our speakers gave, gave an argument for God's existence based on what's called the moral law. It's called the moral law argument. How many of you ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Ever heard of C.S. Lewis? Ever heard of the book Mere Christianity? Chapter 1, Lewis begins his whole argument uh, on, the, on the moral law, on the fact that there, is, there are moral laws that everyone knows. In fact, the word conscience, if you look at the English word conscience, con-science, with knowledge. So if that's true, if, there are, if, if self-evident truths do exist, then does that mean that people know basic right and wrong? According to that, yes, they do. And this is not just what philosophers are saying. This is what the Bible says. The Scripture says exactly the same thing. The Apostle Paul, we'll look at that in a second. So a self-evident truth is true for all people at all time across all cultures. Christians, Jews, Muslims, even non-believers hold these truths. We hold these truths to be self-evident. So 250 years ago, when the Founding Fathers created America, and when they made the founding documents, they knew that it would only operate when the people believed that there were self-evident truths. But we're now living in a culture that has completely and radically rejected self-evident truth, and it's all what, whatever you want it to mean. Truth is just a matter of your perspective and whatever the case may be. It's codified in the Old Testament Decalogue, and it's also above the chamber of the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the Ten Commandments are... Um, the Apostle Paul writes about it here in Romans chapter 2. He says, For when the Gentiles, when, uh, who do not have the law, and he's talking there when he says law, he's talking about the Torah, the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish, non-believers, when they, when they said they don't have the Torah, they don't have the Ten Commandments, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law unto themselves, who show the work of the law, there it is, written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness they have a conscience. People have a conscience. And he says, And between themselves, their thoughts, either accusing or else excusing them, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And that is known as the natural law. And it's in the Scripture. Paul knew this very, very well. And in fact, we'll come back to Paul in a moment. Let's talk about the Torah, the Ten Commandments. So not only uh, where we talked about it just a second ago, I mentioned the fact that there was uh, Edward Gibbon who wrote The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire and then Eric Klein's book about the collapse of civilization. And there are many, many other books. Uh, St. Augustine, the great uh, Christian theologian, St. Augustine, uh, wrote a book uh, after the fall. Rome fell in 410 A.D. by these invading Visigothic tribes that basically uh, came into Rome, but uh, a, a Several hundred, about a hundred years before that, uh, an emperor named Constantine the Great actually moved the capital from Rome to uh, Constantinople, which is now modern-day Istanbul. 
So, uh, but Rome had fallen, and St. Augustine wrote in response to the pagans that were accusing the Christians of, uh, or they were the reason why Rome fell. St. Augustine wrote a book called The City of God in answer to the fact as to why Rome fell. But all the way back in the early Bible, in what, what is called the Pentateuch or the Torah, so when, when we talk about the Torah, what I mean is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. There's another nation that we can look at that where God actually gives principles not only for the reasons for a collapse of a civilization, but also for its building, also for its health, for its well-being. There, is a, there are some, actually some rules that we can look at in God's Word to show us how to make a nation. Now, we are not Israel, obviously. We are America. But the principles, I believe, still apply. The basic principles, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. I think that applies to any nation who honors God and puts God uh, in their laws in some form or another. So it is a national identity and destiny of ancient Israel, these first five books. So uh, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the book of Deuteronomy. And so I want you to turn there with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And this, of course, is the, um, the last book in the Torah. And the English word, uh, the English title, Deuteronomy, it's, it's actually taken from the Septuagint. It's actually not, the Hebrew title is always in the first few lines of the book. But the English title, uh, sometimes you'll see it translated, if you, like, if you have a study Bible and you look at the study Bible, it says second law. Well, it's technically not the second law. It's, it's the, the Hebrew title is, these are the words. Literally, that's the title. The Hebrew title of the book of Deuteronomy is, these are the words. Well, the words of who? Well, the words of Moses and really the words of God and really the Ten Commandments. So it's not a second giving of the law. It's a review of the law of what God had already given back in Exodus chapter 20. So this is their law and this is what God told them. In fact, He chose Israel not because they were great. He chose them because they were small and He was going to build a nation from these people as He drew them out of Egypt and He did this miraculous miracle of parting the Red Sea, causing the plagues. He got them out, and now they are about to enter into the promised land. They're a new nation, a brand new nation. This, uh, Israel at this time was basically like George Washington and Jefferson. They were about to begin a nation. And here's what God said to them. This is what He said. Look at what He says in chapter 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess." that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes and His commandments, which I command you, and you and your son and your grandson all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord of God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. And here it is, verse 4. The Hebrew word is Shema. Shema, hear, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. And these are the words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk to them, uh, talk of them when you sit down in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be frontless between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Wow. So that's it. 
That's it. You say, well, is that it? Yeah. Love God. Love Him with everything that you are. If you're going to succeed in this new land, if you're going to be successful as a nation, you have got to put God number one. He has got to be number one in your heart. You are to speak of Him, love Him, teach these commandments to your children, write them on your hands, speak about them all the time, let them continually be on your lips, He says. So God, the love for God is the center of it. So let me just basically give you this. This is really cool. Deuteronomy, if you really want to understand Deuteronomy, it's three sermons, basically. It's three sermons by Moses. He's basically preaching three basic messages. He's talking to Israel as they're on the plains of Moab. He's talking about their past, what God had done in their past. God delivered them out of Egypt. And then their present, their current position, where they were now. They're on the plains of Moab. They're about to go into the promised land. So they're, they're at a critical moment in their history. They had to decide which one they're going to do. Are they going to follow God or are they going to follow themselves or follow the Egyptian gods in which they had just been uh, delivered from? And their future, their great potential and destiny. And this is about their destiny. So, in, in fact, in, in, the, one of the sermons, well, the later sermon, Deuteronomy 28, in fact, this has a whole principle that theologians call the Deuteronomic principle or the Deuteronomic law, which basically is the conditions. The conditions for success are to trust God. If you trust me, I will bring you to the land. If you love me and trust me, I will bring you into the land. But if you disobey me, if you, if you reject me and you worship other gods, he tells to Israel, I will drive you out of the land. And in fact, we see this. I'm an archaeologist. I see it in the land. I can see it in the ground. They worship Baal. They worship Asherah. We can see this in the material culture of Israel. They did exactly what God told them not to do. He told them not to worship other gods, but what did they do? They worshiped other gods. And I actually live in Chicago now, and I lead trips uh, to one of the, uh, perhaps one of the greatest archaeological museums in the country, it's called the Oriental Institute Museum. It is uh, located at the University of Chicago. And they actually, uh, just this year, uh, uh, 2019, uh, the Oriental Institute turned 100 years old. So the Oriental Institute was founded 100 years ago by an American Egyptologist by the name of James Henry Breasted. And uh, they have remarkable artifacts. One of the artifacts in there is actually huge sections of a palace of an Assyrian king by the name of Sargon II. Sargon II was the father of another king named Sennacherib. If you know your Bible, you know who these guys are. Sennacherib is the guy who came into Jerusalem and, and tried to lay siege to Jerusalem. He also laid siege to a city called Lachish, which was a city that guarded Jerusalem. And, uh, but in this palace... Uh, this palace is, we're, we're standing there, and I lead tour groups, and, I, and we're, there's one thing in there. It's a, it's a 40-tonned winged bull uh, called a lamasu. It's a mythical creature. It sort of looks like a, a bull with wings, and it has the head of a man. It sort of looks like something Ezekiel would have written about. In fact, Ezekiel may have been influenced by some of this Assyrian imagery. We don't know, but there's this mythical creature. But the thing weighs 40 tons. And they have palace walls. You can literally stand there. The, the section that they have at the Oriental Institute is literally as you're entering into the throne room of Sargon II himself. And what I say to people, I have a Bible, I'll, I'll quote it. Um, basically, it's, it's the fulfillment of what God basically did. He said, listen, when you don't uh, obey me, I'm going to send another nation to drive you out, a wicked nation. And what did God do? God raised up Assyria. And God did take them into captivity, two captivities. Well, the first, they were fighting against Israel in the north. And in 722 B.C., they were taken off 
uh, the northern kingdom partially was taken off by an, another Syrian king by, by the name of Tiglath Pileser. So I don't want to get off on that. But you get the idea here is that, the, that what happened in history is exactly what God said would happen, uh, that God would take them off into captivity. Uh, so, yeah, we just read that. So Christ in the New Testament says the same thing about loving God. This is not just an Old Testament thing. Loving God is in the New Testament. In Matthew 22, uh, one of the Pharisees said, Rabbi, which is the greatest commandment in the Torah? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the law and the prophets. So all the Old Testament hang on loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, what does it look like for us to love God with all of our hearts and souls and minds today? Have you thought about that? You know, think about that. In the Bible, of all, all the Bible, all the stories, 66 books in the Bible, the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't you think we ought to kind of pay attention to that? I mean, I don't know, maybe I, we should. So if that's the case, if it's the greatest commandment, then what does that look like for me to love God with my mind? Let me ask you, just think about this, you're on your own heart. Do you really love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you really do that? Do I do that? I have to be honest and say I don't. I mean, I want to. My heart wants to, but I really don't. And you read, you read the Old Testament. I'm, I'm sort of glad that I, we've got the Old Testament, and especially the book of Psalms. Psalm 119, the psalmist basically says, Lord, I, I want to keep your law, and I love your law, but I find that I don't do it. And even the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 says, the very thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I keep doing. You know, but in my inward man, I delight in God's law, but my outward man is wasting away. And I find this war, this war within me. But what does it look like today to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Jesus says, if you love me, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. If you love me, if you love Jesus, we say we love Jesus, and we, we give that, we say that. But if we really love him, then we will obey what he commands. Well, what does he command? Um, let me, before we do that, let's, let's get to this. Well, let me ask you this. Um, Jesus did tell us to share the gospel, right? Matthew 27, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So the question I want to throw out to you this morning is this. What is it that keeps people from becoming Christians today? Just shout it out. Tell me. What are, what are some things that people go, you know what? I, what, what are some things you've heard? Maybe you've talked to people. What do you think? What's that? Self. What do you mean, like being people being selfish? They don't think about other people. Yes, yes, absolutely. Anybody else? What are some things that keep people from becoming Christian? Because if our role, if our mission as the church is to share the gospel, then what are some things that keep people from coming? What do people say? Well, I'm, I wouldn't become a Christian because what? Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, I'll wait later. I'll, I'll think about it. I'll wait later. Yeah, absolutely. Anybody, any, anything else? Yes. A lack of trust. Absolutely. Anybody else? What's that? Amen, brother. Preach it. Lifestyle of Christians. Lifestyle of Christians is what he said. You we hear the amen on that? Some of us, sometimes we don't live like we're Christians. And I, you know, if, please, if you've got a little Jesus thing on your car, uh, don't drive like a, a psycho. <laughs> Take it off or drive and, and uh, you know, drive the speed limit, you know. But yeah, absolutely. Hypocrisy. They, they see Christians and they're like, I don't want to become a Christian. 
Absolutely. So there are any number of things that keep people, intellectual reasons, irrelevant. I don't think, it's not relevant to my life. I'm living, you know, I'm living with my girlfriend and my boyfriend and I'm living my, my lifestyle. I don't care. You know, I just don't care. I'm, I'm in the party scene. Uh, clash of worldviews. They have a completely different worldview. A completely, maybe they're Jehovah's Witness or Mormon. Or maybe they're caught in a cult and they just do not see the relevance of Christianity. Um, evil and suffering in the world. What about that? They look at the evil in the world like, you know what? I just, there can't be a God if there's evil and suffering in the world. Uh, relativism, pluralism. Uh, what about this? Jesus said they won't come to the light because they love the darkness rather than the light. Sin. Sin. Uh, we don't talk about that a lot today, but sin is what keeps people from coming to Christ. So how did Paul, and, and I know I'm, I don't know, I'm probably going over now, but uh, uh, so how did Paul show his love for God? Well, and why Paul? Well, we have a good record of Paul's life and teaching recorded in the New Testament. And Paul engaged the culture by practicing three fundamental mandates. And a mandate is really a command. It's like our marching orders. Paul encapsulated in his own life, he loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I want, us, I want us to look at what he did. And here they are. They're either stated or explicitly implied. The gospel mandate, very simple. It's just three things, the gospel. Matthew 28, Jesus said, All authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So that is our command. We have marching orders, church, to go and make disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, Spain, South America, Africa, Italy. I've got friends in Italy that are doing the same thing. They're working at a missionary church or they're teaching missionary children, and also working on a NATO base, teaching uh, military children as well. Uh, but, the, but the mission, the fields are white into harvest. Uh, we need people to go and share the gospel, even here in America, even here in LaGrange, even here in North Carolina. Years ago, I was at a, uh, belonged to a church in Charlotte. I lived there for about 20 years, and they had a, a really big emphasis on missions. And I love this because they had this, and they would just say it over and over and over again, and it sort of sticks with you. But, that, but the, the, the mantra was, or whatever, lack of a better term, it was nearest neighbor's nation. If you're not reaching your nearest, who is the people right next to you? If you're not sharing the gospel with them, nearest neighbor's nation. That's where you want to go. That's where, the, that's where you start. You do evangelism and you reach people for Christ exactly where you are. So who is around you right now? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone that you know you go to school with. Maybe it's a coworker. I don't know who it is. But if you are reaching that person, then your neighbor, then the, the nations. So that's the way we ought to be doing evangelism. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The second one is why we had the conference this weekend, the rational mandate. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be ready to give a what? Those of you know that what? An answer, a defense. Be ready to give a defense for why you're Christian. And that's where we are failing. Many Christians are failing because they don't know why Christianity is true. You grow up in the church, you know that Jesus is the Son of God, but then when you're challenged, you don't know how to answer it. You're like, well, well you know, it's just it's my own personal belief. Eh, wrong, that's not a good answer. Sorry. I'm just going to tell you right now, bluntly, that is not a great answer. Or Jesus changed, yeah, Jesus did change your life. You know what? The Mormon can say the same thing. I know Mormons that are very happy in their Mormonism, and they're so deceived. So the, the question is, is it real? Did it really happen? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? 
is it, does it correspond to reality? So we've got to be able to defend our faith and know why Christianity is true. And then Jude 1.3 says that we are to contend for the faith once and for all and trust in the saints. So we are under command to not only proclaim the faith, to proclaim the gospel, but also to defend the gospel as well. And the third one that we don't even talk about, and as the communicate the gospel, what I call the rhetorical mandate. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and then Acts 17. Does anybody know the Acts 17 passage? You know that verse. What was Paul doing in Acts 17? Remember that? He was where? Where was he? He was in Athens, the center of the Greek culture, where the philosophers were. And he was preaching the gospel to the philosophers, to the pagan philosophers. Isn't that crazy? In that case, we'd send Brother Tyson for, to do that, because uh, he, would, he would do a good job on that. Uh, but yes, we'll talk about that. The explicit gospel, sound reason, apologetics, and effective communication. How do we, we need to proclaim, we need to defend, and we need to effectively communicate the gospel to the culture in which we are. So these are three easy to remember. Gospel mandate, rational mandate, rhetorical mandate, proclaim, defend, communicate. Got that? Let's look at an example real quickly of how Paul did this. Two examples. Number one, to the Jews. Notice what Paul did. He went immediately, he preached to Christ in the synagogue. He was a Jewish man, he was a Pharisee, and he wanted his brothers to know what it was like to know Christ. So he went first to the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Acts chapter 9, verse 20, it says, And now when they passed through Ampolis uh, Am, and Apollonia, they came to the Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. There, then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining to them and demonstrating to them uh, all the things that Christ did. He rose from the dead. Then Jesus said, Then this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So Paul went first to his Jewish, uh, his Jewish family. And so that's where we need to go. We need to start where we are. He went to the religious community, and certainly we need to do evangelism in the religious community, but we also need to do it as well in the, uh, in the pagan community as well. Then to the Greeks. Now Paul was waiting for them in Athens. His spirit was provoked within him, he says, when, I saw, or when he saw that Athens was given over to idols. There was idols everywhere. And uh, is, is our spirit provoked today? You know, do we see idols going on? I mean, is there, are you provoked? And you, are you saddened when you see uh, people, what they, what they kind of bow down to today? And maybe perhaps we sometimes join them in, in the same thing. So we need to have a passion for uh, the gospel that we would want to share it with those who, uh, who need Christ. Therefore, he says, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, with the Gentile worshipers in the marketplace daily with those who happen to be there. So in the marketplace, there's two places we do evangelism. We do it to the religious community, and we also do it in the marketplace as well. So in this, in fact, Paul said this in, well, Acts uh, chapter 17. He says, he stood in the midst of the Areopagus. This is right in the middle of, let me contextualize this for a second. So how many of you have ever heard of a TED Talk? You ever heard of a TED Talk? Not me, TED, but the TED Talks. And uh, the TED Talks, you can see the little videos well, imagine Paul was, he was at the TED Talk of the day. It was Areopagus. It was Mars Hills where the latest, the latest philosophy, the latest technology, it was like, ooh, this is like a happening place. And, and to their credit, you know, they're there to listen to all the ideas. They're there to listen. And he says, he stood up and he says, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. And he was sort of playing to the crowd. He knew the crowd. For as I was passing through your, uh, your city and I was considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. 
Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So the question we need to figure out is, what is, what is the unknown God today? What is the, way, what is the one thing we can use? And, and it's not any one thing. Maybe it's multiple things. Maybe it's, it's something you can use to share the gospel, to explain who Christ is. And so Paul did that, as was his custom. So a couple of observations. Again, there were two different cultures that Paul engaged, the religious culture and the secular culture, the, uh, the Jews and the Greeks and the Gentiles. And in both cultures, he practiced all three mandates. He proclaimed Christ, he defended Christ, and he communicated Christ according to who he was speaking to. And let me speak just a, a quick word about this. We need to know who our audience is. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this. He says, uh, he says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave for everyone. And at the, at the bottom there, he says, I have become all things to all men that I may, all possible means, might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. Now, what he's saying here is he's not saying that he's going like, to convert to Judaism or you know, become a pagan. He's saying that I want to understand where they're coming from. And as a Christian, as someone who wants to share the gospel, you need to get to know people. And the question we... Here's the question. Do you have any unsaved friends? Do you have any people that are just completely unsaved? Or, or all of our friends and everybody we hang out with, are they just fellow Christians? And I think a lot of times we Christians, we love, and it's great to have fellowship. Awesome. We should have fellowship. you got a great church. But do you have any lost friends? Do you have any pagan friends? And if you don't, then why not? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. But we seem to be in the holy huddle, and we don't really care about the lost. But so Paul says, I become all things to all men that I might save some. So do we, do we have compassion on those who we don't agree with? Now again, that's something that you have to use wisdom and be very careful about. But we need to understand where people are coming from and communicate the gospel in a way that they can understand. So one of the most important truths in reaching the culture for Christ is basically to address the issues and concerns of your listeners. In fact, Alistair McGrath says it this way in his book, Mere Apologetics. He says, effective apologetics is grounded in the knowledge of its audience. This audience is not static and predictable. It is not the same irrespective of age, social location, country, origin, or language. Rather, it is dynamic and changing. The apologist needs to know his or her audience, speak its language, and share in its common flow of life. So if we're going to reach LaGrange, if we're going to reach North Carolina... And who, who better to reach LaGrange than people from LaGrange? That God has called you to be a light to where you are. And the question, the, the challenge I want to give to you is, what are some ways, and you guys are already doing some amazing stuff with the sports ministry, and uh, Brother Jeremy was showing me about the, uh, the, field, the football field out there that uh, you guys are working on. That's what an awesome way to reach out to the community. It's a way, it's one of the many ways that we can reach out to those around us. So who is our audience today? Is it religious culture in America? Uh, we do have a youth exodus crisis, by the way. This has been going on for some years now. Basically, uh, and the numbers changes, and Tyson could probably correct me on this, but it was around 75% of young people are walking away from the faith when they leave church. They go to college, they're going to walk away from the faith. So we've got a youth crisis on our hands in the church. And uh, we need to know, we need to share, be sharing with them reasons why Christianity is true. Secular culture. We live in a post-Christian culture. I've got some data here from Barna, George Barna. And I don't know, this is several years ago from Barna.org, but one of the largest uh, growing segments in U.S. society, it's probably true around the world, is a group called the Nuns. 
those who don't claim, young people who are 20 and under who don't claim a religion. They's like, I don't have a religion or I'm atheist or I don't care. That is the largest growing group in the world today uh, of young people. So uh, we live in a, uh, perhaps a post-Christian America. So according to this Barna study, what they call post-Christian met 60%, nine or more factors. Uh, highly post-Christian is 80% or more. So here are the factors. They don't believe in God. They, are, uh, they identify as atheist or agnostic. Faith is not important in their life. They've not prayed to God in the last year. They've not made a commitment to Jesus. Um, and then uh, they believe that the Bible is inaccurate. Huh, well, I got news for them. I got some artifacts to show them on that. But, uh, and then they've not donated money to a church. Uh, they've not identified, uh, not attended a Christian church. They agree that Jesus committed sins. So there's a lot of things that we need to really uh, you know, address here. They, they don't feel the responsibility to share their faith. And they've not read the Bible in the last week. And they've not volunteered at church in the last week, and they've not attended Sunday school. So those obviously would be the case if they're atheists, and not attended a small group as well. So, um, so this this is where we are in our in our culture. In fact, Barna says this, and uh, we'll sort of kind of wrap things up here in just a second. He said our research suggests that most of the efforts of Christian ministries fail to reach much beyond the core of Christianized America. It is often much easier to work with this core audience than to focus on the so-called nuns. The data give evidence that some cities and younger generations are more gospel-resistant than the norm. And in part, Christian leaders have to realize that many efforts fall short because they imagine the post-Christian population is hanging on its every word. He says new levels of courage and clarity will be required to uh, connect beyond the Christianized majority. I think what he's saying there, folks, is that we're preaching to the choir. When we do our outreach and our evangelism, it's great. But a lot of times we're preaching to the choir. What are we doing to reach the people who just never would walk into a church? I remember years ago when I was a pastor in a small town in North Carolina. Uh, I won't mention that town because maybe somebody's listening. But, uh, but I remember uh, they came to me and, and uh, you know, and I'll, don't get me wrong, I like gospel music. They want to have a gospel singing. They want to do an outreach into the community have a gospel singing. Well, that's great, brother. You want to have a gospel singing. But that's not evangelism. That's having sheep come in and have a good gospel singing. Who's going to want to come hear a good gospel singing? You think the atheist, the heroin addict is going to want to come hear a good gospel singing? No. They don't care. They don't give a rat's behind about a good gospel singing. What do they want? They want, they want something that's going to like give me some money or give me a food or whatever the case may be. They, what are we doing to reach them? What are we doing to reach the people? We, don't, we, we kind of don't want these people coming to our church whatever. That's the people we need to be reaching. What are we doing to reach them? That's the question we need to ask ourselves. So, uh, and it's, again, it's not just, I'm not pointing any fingers here. I'm just saying that's true across the United States. Let me leave you with a basic apologetic outline. These are four apologetic questions. You don't, if you've never read any books on it, these four questions are fundamental questions that, that you need to learn how to answer. And what are they? Four vital questions. Does truth exist? And I hope you know the answer to that. Yes, it does. And what is truth? We talked about it this weekend. Those of you who are here know what it is. Truth is that which corresponds not to my feelings, not to what, to what I think, but to reality. Reality. Truth is that which corresponds to reality, not feeling. Number two, does God exist? It, now, again, to you and I, we, we're Christians. We believe in God. But for a lot of people, they don't believe God exists. And it's a fundamental question that you need to know how to answer. You should at least know some basic arguments for God's existence. And when I say argument, or an apologist uses the word argument, we don't mean that we want to be argumentative, but you need to know a case, a rational case for why God exists. I'll give you a real simple one. 
Um, every design implies a designer. Like if you find a watch, if you go out on the beach and you find a watch laying in the sand, you know that's got a designer. Every design implies a designer. The universe shows evidence of design, therefore the universe has a designer. Easy, isn't it? Just basic common sense. Uh, but that's, that's where you want to begin. Does God exist? Number three, are miracles possible? The reason I mention this is because uh, question three is actually related to question two. Because if God doesn't exist, then miracles are not possible. And what is the greatest miracle, or what is the greatest thing in the, in the New Testament that if this thing were not true, then we should not even be here this morning? The resurrection, right? So resurrections can't happen. This is a supernatural, a man rising from the dead. Literally, he was crucified on a Roman cross. He died and he rose again. So truth has to exist. God has to exist. Miracles have to be possible. And then number three or number four, is the New Testament reliable? Is the New Te- can we trust the New Testament? And, uh, and we've given evidence for this. I've got pottery out there I can show you. I can talk about archaeological evidence. There's good reasons why we can trust the Bible. Now, we believe it by faith, and evidence in no way takes away from faith. In fact, evidence strengthens faith. As John Lennox said, that faith is not the rejoicing in the absence of evidence, but uh, it is a rejoicing in evidence. It's, pl- it's strengthening evidence. And Lennox, by the way, is a mathematician at Oxford University in England. He's a, also a believer. So four questions. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament reliable? If you can answer those four questions, you know a basic apologetic outline, and they're all building one on top of the other. There's one other book here that I recommend. It's a little small book. You can get it on Amazon. It's by Peter Crape. It's called A Handbook on Christian Apologetics. It's a little small paperback book. It's not very long, but it contains your basic bare-bones information about apologetics. Uh, If you don't get any other book, check that out. And uh, Tyson uh, James here is an excellent resource for other books. He uh, he works for Dr. William Lane Craig, a a brilliant Christian thinker, uh, and he can point you to some other resources as well. So talk to him, and he can get you some great stuff in your hands. So let's end with this. So at the end, when Paul was all said and done, Paul got through preaching. It says, And when they heard of the resurrection, some of them mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. What I want you to take away is this. So when we're out there doing and being faithful to what God has called us to do, when we proclaim, we defend, and we communicate the gospel in the best way we possibly know how, and we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, here's what people are going to respond. Everybody's been doing this since Paul, since Christ. Some will mock. You're going to get mockers. You're going to get some interested, and you're going to get some who are going to believe. So three groups of people. Mockers, those who are interested. I'm going to hear this again. And some who will actually believe. If that was true of Paul, it's going to be true of you. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if you're out there doing the work of God and doing the gospel. Some people are going to mock you, uh, and some people are going to be interested. You're planting seeds. It's God who's the one doing the work. Christ is one working through you. In fact, we are called to be salt and light in our culture. Jesus said that we are the salt of the earth, and we are the light of the world. We are really reflecting His light, and we are His hands, and we are His feet. Um, Let me finish with this. Let me close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. Uh, Back in 1939, back in 1939, C.S. Lewis was asked to preach a sermon at uh, a church in England, at Oxford, actually. This is at the the beginning of World War II, and the dark clouds of Nazi Germany were spreading over Europe, 
and uh, the, the, uh, the people, the higher-ups at Oxford and Cambridge were worried that young men, uh, in fact, they, they were already saying that, listen, I'm just going to drop out of college and I'm not going to learn anything because what's more important is that I got to go to war. I got to go fight the Germans. I got to go fight the Nazis. And so, so they asked Lewis to come and address uh, why, why education and why learning is important in a time of war. And this is what he said. In fact, the name of the uh, article was published in his book. It ended up being a chapter in the book Weight of Glory, which is absolutely one of my favorite books Lewis ever wrote. This is what he said uh, back in 1939. This was, if it's true then, it is true today. He says this, and I'm going to stand over here and read it because I can see it better. There will always be plenty of rivals to our work. We're busy. You're busy. I get it. You know, it's, it's your life happens. You've got kids. You've got schedules. There's always something to do. There's always going to be pl- plenty of rivals to our work. We're always falling in love or quarreling or looking for jobs or fearing to lose them, getting ill, getting sick, recovering, following public affairs, following the news. He says, if we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. And he says this, the only people who achieve much are those who want knowledge so badly that they seek it while the conditions are still unfavorable. Favorable conditions never come. They're never going to come for you. They didn't happen back then. They're not going to come then. He says, if men had postponed the search for knowledge and beauty until they were secure, the search would never have begun. We are mistaken when we compare war with normal life. Life has never been normal. Isn't that good? He's exactly right. Life is never, it's busy, I understand. But you know what? If we want, if we care about America, if we care about our culture, then we need to learn apologetics. We need to learn about our faith. We need to buy books. We need to become sharp. We need to love God with our minds. We need to love with everything that we are. We need to be passionate. You know, I heard a sermon, uh, or I heard a quote years ago by Dr. Leonard Ravenhill, who is a firebrand preacher and writer. And he said, the, the church today is a, is a mild-mannered man urging everybody to be mild-mannered. And that's, that's kind of where we are today, I think. I don't think Brother Jeremy is, but a lot of preachers are, they just, they just want to, you know, be mild-mannered. No, we need people on fire for God, on fire for truth. And the people will see that in us, and they will see that we love God, and we see that we love truth. So the question I want to ask you is this. Will you commit to learning something about your faith? Will you grow deeper? Because you, know you know who benefits with this? You do. You benefit. And it, what it does is when you learn more about your faith, and let me tell you, we've got an awesome faith. It is amazing what you have. In fact, I would say this, that I think the average Christian has no idea of the riches that we have in Christ, the amazing riches that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sitting on a spiritual gold mine, and you don't even know it. God has given you everything you need to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. He has given you everything you need to communicate the gospel. He's given you the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given you all these great things so that you can be a light for Him. And what do we do? We play on our phone. <laughs> we watch Facebook, you know, like fanatically. <laughs> and I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, that's what we do. We, we get distracted. And I understand that. But it's time that we see the time of our day, and we need to, we need men and women who will love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. And this is the last quote, I promise. Francis Schaeffer said this, it is important to remember that first of all, we cannot separate true apologetics from the work of the Holy Spirit, nor from a living relationship in prayer to the Lord on the part of the Christian. We must understand eventually that the battle is not just against flesh and blood. We are in a war, folks, and it is a spiritual warfare. And the battle is not just intellectual, it is spiritual. 
And we need to be on our knees praying that God would use us, that God would speak through us. We need to be earnestly praying for our loved ones and realize that without prayer and without God, we can do nothing. Without His help, it's not just about arguments, it's not about learning, it's about God using us and sharpening us. Can God use a donkey? Yes, He did. He absolutely did. Can God use anything? He can use anything. But here's the thing, when you, the sharper you make yourself, the, the, you, basically you're like an arrow, and the further God can shoot you into the kingdom of darkness. So make yourself sharp. Make yourself usable by God. Submit to Him and say, God, use me. Use my mind. I want to love you with all that I am. Will you do that? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, dear God, for this church, for all that you have done, Lord, here, and all that you're doing this weekend, dear God. I thank you for, for Pastor Jeremy and all the great work that he's done and for, uh, for Tyson James, who is, uh, Lord, just organized this conference this weekend. For all those who came, Father, I pray that you would, uh, Lord, use what was said uh, for your glory and for your honor, dear God. Further your kingdom, dear God. Use your people. Father, forgive us and cleanse us from our sins. Help us, Father, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, Father, help us to love our neighbor as ourself. Dear God, if we love you, if we love you, Lord Jesus, we will do what you command. And so, Father, you commanded us to share the love of Christ with those around us. So I pray, Father, if there's one here this morning that's never trusted in Christ, dear God, I pray that they would, Lord, learn what it's like and know the gospel, know that Christ died for their sins, that he was buried in, the, in a tomb and rose again on the third day, that he took their sins on the cross. And Father, if there's one here this morning, perhaps a family, perhaps an individual, Lord, and Lord, we want to recommit ourselves to loving you with all that we are, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray, Father, that you would do a work in our hearts right now, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Thank you, Ted. Thank you. I'm going to ask Ted if you would just uh, hang tight right here for just a second. And um, also, I'm going to go ahead and invite, as Amanda continues to play, I'll invite the Byerleys, if you would, uh, come up. Let's just have you guys, if you could, Ted, uh, both, uh, we can have both of you just stand out here, uh, representation here. And I'm going to ask our uh, Pastor Dean, Pastor Nate, Pastor Stuglemeyer, if y'all would come on up here as well. I want to gather around these guys. We want to pray for them today. Um, these are front line. These are folks out there doing ministry on the front line, guys. And so are you. And we're in this together. We're a church family. And God has saw fit to, to bring these missionaries into our midst today. And the scripture tells us that we're to receive them and we're to send them uh, on their way um, with blessing. And so I want to ask you to join with me as we pray for them uh, as they launch out as arrows. And so I ask you, uh, pastors, if you would just gather around here and we'll just uh, place hands on these guys and, and let's just pray for them uh, this morning. Father God, uh, we thank you for uh, your people. And thank you, Lord, that you allow us to partner together in the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that you will send uh, our missionaries back to Spain, that the Byerleys will be uh, just equipped and, and blessed to continue and encouraged to continue to do the work you've called them to. Fill them with your spirit, Lord, and use them in a mighty way. And for Brother Ted, uh, Lord, I ask that you will uh, just protect him, that you will use him, that you will allow him to uncover truths that are written in your word. 
and that the end result that many uh, may see and come to know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time together, and we ask your blessing as we all go from here. May we go in your strength. May we go as missionaries, carrying the gospel to a lost and dying world. Please let our light shine. In Jesus' name, amen.